Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another weekend of our stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. Today we are going to be continuing the story of Gideon. In recent weeks, we've talked about this leader that God raised up to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about the fact that as we read these stories in the book of Judges, or even as we read some of these Old Testament stories, uh, there are oftentimes questions raised as to whether or not these stories are historical, whether or not these stories are true. Um, And as we read the story of Gideon, um, I think think it's important to at least receive it as a true story. Uh, How do we usually know if a story is true or not? Uh, Well, there are stories that are told all the time that we uh, just assume are not true, and those are fairy tales. And usually fairy tales begin with a certain phrase that kind of clues you in that this is a made-up story, the phrase once upon a time. And then there are all kinds of unbelievable details in fairy tales, like houses made of candy or ogres and giants and magic and and unicorns um, that further show you that the story is not true. And then oftentimes fairy tales end with Uh, probably the most unrealistic line in all of literature, the line that says they lived happily ever after. One of the reasons that I think we can have a lot of confidence that the stories from the book of Judges are true is that there are no happily ever after endings in these stories. Uh, The story of Israel, as is told through the book of Judges, is uh, a story (laughs) It has no happy endings. And this recent story we've been reading through of Gideon, even though it may seem as Gideon's on the heels of a great victory, it might seem like there's uh, we're just getting set up for a happily ever after. Uh, this is not going to be the case. And so we'll get into the story and see that begin to unfold for us today. Uh, so God has raised up Gideon. He's given him victory. Gideon's army is pursuing the Midianites across the land. And he sends messengers to the neighboring tribe of Ephraim to head off the Midianites at the Jordan River. And so Ephraim uh, gathers an army, they run over, they head off the Midianites, and they end up capturing and killing two of the prominent Midianite leaders. And, And this is a point where we're beginning to feel, yeah, this is leading towards a total and complete victory. This is beginning to be set up like a happily ever after kind of story. Uh, Israel's won a great victory over their enemies, and yet as it would turn out, as the story progresses, we find out that Israel's greatest enemy is yet to be defeated, uh, and really that Israel's greatest enemy is perhaps Israel itself. So Gideon has recruited the tribe of Ephraim to help him in this battle. Uh, The tribe of Ephraim was arguably one of the most powerful tribes in early Israel. Uh, Ephraim was actually one of Joseph's two sons, one of Joseph's two sons, his younger son, actually. And Joseph, of course, was one of Jacob, or who was renamed by God Israel. Joseph was one of Jacob's original 12 sons. He was the second youngest of Jacob's sons, and yet he was Jacob's favorite. And uh, because of that, he was treated with all kinds of extra favor and uh, and really treated in some ways like a firstborn. Although he was number 11 of 12, he was treated like he was a firstborn. And back in those days, one of the things that the firstborn of uh, Jacob's children got was a double inheritance. And so when Jacob, Israel, was about to die, he calls his son Joseph to him and asks that he brings his two sons in, that he would bless them. 
And in blessing them, Jacob makes both of Joseph's sons a member of his 12 sons, which when you replace one person with two people, yeah, we've got 13 people now. Uh, There are kind of 13 tribes in Israel, depending on how you count them. But Joseph now has two tribes in Israel, a double inheritance. But then another thing that Jacob does is he blesses Ephraim, the younger of Joseph's two sons, over Manasseh, the older of the two sons, kind of displaces Manasseh and gives Ephraim the place of honor and authority that would have belonged to the firstborn. And so Joseph is carrying a firstborn type of honor, even though he's a younger son. And then Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, is also given a firstborn type of honor. And and that honor, that, that blessing that came from Jacob carried some influence on how things began to unfold within the tribes and the nation that they set up. And so Ephraim really becomes a center of leadership in this confederacy of tribes in early Israel. So Ephraim... The, the leaders of Israel comes to Gideon at the beginning of chapter 8, and they say to him on the heels of this victory, uh, they come to him at the beginning of chapter 8, and they say, uh, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And then it says they challenged him vigorously. It's as if the leaders of Israel are coming to, to Gideon and saying, hey, you called us at halftime when you'd already started the battle, and we're really upset that you didn't include us in in the beginning. Now, why didn't Gideon call these tribes in the beginning? We know in earlier chapters, we'd read about Gideon blowing the trumpet and inviting different tribes to come and join him in the battle. Why didn't an invitation go out specifically to Ephraim? Well, if you remember, Gideon's from this brother tribe of Manasseh, and Manasseh's been displaced by Ephraim as the lead tribe, and I would imagine there's some dynamics that would play into this of sibling rivalry, maybe some insecurity and competition. Uh, There's also probably some geographical realities. You know, when Gideon sent word out to Israel to join him in the fight against the Midianites, the account just has him sending word to the northern tribes of Israel, and, and so perhaps the oppression of the Midianites was more strong in northern areas and uh, more severe in those areas, and and so perhaps that's why. I mean, we don't really know why, but he didn't. So Gideon's being confronted, and we have a history of bad blood here, and so the, the, what does Gideon do with this confrontation? You know, does he puff up his chest and go to battle against his brothers? You know, kind of like, well, guess what, Ephraim? Well, we are Joseph's real firstborn, and God has appointed me to lead here, and so uh, that's why we didn't invite you to the battle, so there. Uh, I suppose Gideon could have responded that way, but he doesn't. He humbles himself. And if you recall, the judges in these stories are supposed to be pointing us to Jesus. They're supposed to be representative of the deliverer that God is going to raise up. We know from uh, the other parts in Scripture that uh, there's a principle in Scripture that a soft answer turns away wrath, that there's grace for the humble. And and so we really see that uh personified in Gideon here in this part of the story. In verse 2, he answers them, and he says, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? That was Gideon's uh, clan within the tribe of Israel. He says, God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to this? And so at this, their resentment against him subsided. 
So this tribe is coming at Gideon on the heels of victory when they should be celebrating victory. There are feelings of jealousy, uh, remnants of maybe ongoing generational competition going on between these families, and they come at Gideon with their guns blazing. What are you thinking? You didn't call us. Why didn't you call us earlier? Uh, When they should maybe be saying, hey, thanks for getting us all going in the right direction here. And you know, sometimes when someone is coming at you with their guns blazing, it would feel that the sensible thing to do is to fire back, right? Draw quickly and fire back. Uh, But Gideon instead chooses meekness. He chooses self-denial. He chooses humility. And and in response to his humble, meek comeback to uh, the tribe of Ephraim, their, their resentment against him subsides and crisis is averted momentarily. You know, the bullets dodged here, but as we keep reading, we're going to see this uh, inner familial conflict between different tribes of Israel uh, continuing to rear its ugly head uh, at a time when all of Israel should be unified in celebration. Anyhow, uh, the resentment of Ephraim is is subsided against Gideon, and he continues on. Gideon and his 300 men, who are exhausted, are keeping up in pursuit, and they come to the River Jordan, and they cross it. They're still chasing the leftovers of the army of Gideon. And so uh, they cross the Jordan River, they go to a a town called Succoth, and they ask the men of Succoth to give them some bread. They're worn out, they're tired. Uh, Gideon says, but I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So Gideon's chasing the Midianites across the Jordan River and into the territory of the tribe of Gad. This is Jacob's seventh son. And they come to this city, Succoth, and they're asking their cousins for some supplies. We've got 300 men here who are exhausted. We're traveling pretty far in hot pursuit of the Gideonites. And uh, we've had this drama with the Ephraimites. We've put that out. And we're just trying to, you know, wrap this battle up and get the victory that God set before us. But the officials of that city begin to taunt Gideon and his soldiers. They say, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Essentially, they're saying, hey, you're not so great. We're not helping you out. And so again, as Gideon is being taunted and and disrespected by his brothers, uh, Gideon responds humbly and, and peace is made again. Uh, actually, no, that's not what happens this time. This time, Gideon has run out of grace. And so he replies to the men of Succoth. He says, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Salmuna into my hand, I am going to tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. So from there, Gideon goes up to Peniel, which is not far from Succoth. Peniel is actually the place where uh, generations earlier, Jacob wrestled with God, saw a stairway to heaven, you know, all of that's from back in Genesis, and, and here's another village of Israelites living in this place, and he makes the same request of them. Hey, we're hungry, we're tired, we just want something to eat so we can continue our pursuit of these Midianite kings, and the people of Peniel answer them just as the men of Succoth had. And so Gideon says to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I'm going to tear down this tower. Uh, Many of the uh, towns of that day would have had some kind of centrally located stronghold within the city, a place where members of that village, which is probably largely built on family uh, structures, uh, these extended family members would all come together into this maybe inner tower or or inner 
uh, fortified place, and that's how they would end up defending themselves, a little place of safety. Um, So Gideon's saying, after I accomplish what I'm going to do, because you weren't willing to help, I'm going to come back, I'm going to tear down the tower. Now, at this point, I, I really don't think that any of these cousins of Gideon, cousins of his tribe of Manasseh, I don't think anyone's rooting for him to win. You know, maybe they weren't rooting for him to begin with, and this is part of the problem, right? God calls Israel out of slavery, delivers them, calls them to be a nation that's unique among the nations, a nation where his glory can be made manifest to the world, a united family of God working together. Um, and yet at this point, they are not a nation where God's glory is on display. They're a bunch of loosely confederated tribes. They're playing all kinds of games of selfish competition with each other, and, and they're divided. And because they're divided, they're often oppressed by the people around them. And if you remember, when God raised Gideon up as a judge to deliver his people, the first thing that God does is have this judge restore the people to their God. Remember, he leads them in repentance from idol worship. They, Gideon tears down the idols and things in his, uh, in his village at God's command, and that's the first step of obedience. We need to walk away from the idols, and we need to begin to follow God. And then God casts off the oppressors. So the judge has the opportunity to be a part of the restoration of Israel to God, and then he has the opportunity to be a deliverer of Israel from their enemies. And then here we see him playing the role of having the opportunity to be a part of the restoration of the family of Israel to one another. Uh, you know, where this victory would give way to Gideon having the kind of influence in society where he could be a voice of reconciliation among these tribes. They could lay down some of these petty old offenses and, and petty old competitions between them and serve and love one another in a holy family of God. You know, a win over the Midianites would provide Gideon with a kind of platform and influence where he could lead a unified family of Jacob, of Israel. And yet instead, the jealousy, the fear, the distrust that has ruled in many ways over this family since the book of Genesis uh, proves to be more than Gideon can overcome. In fact, instead of overcoming it by the power of the Spirit of God who's come upon him and anointed him to lead, Gideon begins to uh, play into uh, some of these powers and principalities of darkness that keep this nation of Israel divided against itself. Gideon has an opportunity to walk even in the anointing of his great ancestor Joseph, who uh, after he'd been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, time and time again God raised him up to a position of leadership and privilege, and in the moment when Joseph's brothers were worried that he would leverage that privilege as an opportunity to bring harshness and judgment on his brothers, Joseph said to his brothers there, don't you know that even though you meant it for evil, God meant all of this for good, and essentially told them they're forgiven, and that he does not hold it against them for what they did. Uh, What a testimony to God's faithfulness that uh, Gideon's band of merry men is, one, still able to have victory over the Midianites, and and they do triumph over the Midianites, even on their empty stomachs when their friends didn't help them out. But what a testimony it would have been to God's faithfulness and his reconciling power if on that victory they then became a, a force for reconciliation in the nation of Israel. But this isn't what they do. They, they triumph over the Midianites, they catch the remaining Midianite kings, and they route their forces, they capture them, and then 
on the heels of victory, Gideon ends up turning his focus back on the men of Succoth. And so what he does is he goes and he catches a young man from the town and he makes the young man write down the names of the 70 elders of the city. And then he brings the conquered Midianite kings, the two men they said you'll never catch, into the city. And he's like, look, here's those guys you said I'd never catch. And then he beats the elders with thorns and briars to teach the city a a lesson. You know, what is the lesson that he's teaching them? I I don't know. I can't imagine Succoth learning anything, but hey, your brother Manasseh over there hates you and you have good reason not to trust him. But anyhow, this is what Gideon does. And actually, the surprising thing to me is that, you you know, in studying this, there are many scholars who are split on whether Gideon should have done this. You know, some say, hey, he's totally justified. You know, these guys insulted him as God's anointed leader, so he came down heavy-handed on him. He should, and if anyone's gonna insult God's anointed leaders, they should be dealt with harshly. You know, a little public beating might actually do some good for society. And (laughs) these Gideon, or sorry, these village elders were complete jerks to Gideon who had just saved them. Uh, So it's all right that he disciplined them. And to some degree, I can see where scholars would be coming from when they say that. There, I could see an argument for propriety of Gideon's behavior and how he treated the men of Succoth. But when he moves on to the next town, to Peniel, uh, Gideon does something that just seems way off base to me. Judges chapter 8, verse 17, it says, He also pulled down the tower of Peniel, and then he killed the men of the town. And this is not a happily ever after kind of ending. In fact, what we're seeing here is the results of generations upon generations of family discord. We're seeing that uh, the harvest being reaped by Jacob's you know, sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. We're seeing the harvest reaped by Jacob's sons who had sowed these seeds of bitterness and hate and distrust in the family all those years ago. And we're seeing what happens in generation after generation when family members allow those things to continue to grow unchecked. Finding excuses not to help each other out. Finding excuses not to honor one another. Indeed, wishing for one another's failure in the things that they put their hand to. And when they have victory, seeing it as an excuse to rub it in their brother's faces. And you give those kinds of behaviors time. And then despite the clear deliverance that's been brought to the people of God by God's Spirit in this story, the end result is all the men in a town are murdered by their brothers. And all the men in another town or all the leaders are humiliated by the one who God has chosen to to lead, and yet he is clearly not leading the way that God himself would lead. Again, I'll acknowledge that some Bible teachers are fully on Team Gideon here. They say that his behavior is totally justified, uh, that he was right in what he was doing, but I just think... How can any scholar look at this kind of bloodshed, brother killing brother, and say Gideon is doing just what he was supposed to do? You know, the people of Peniel got what was coming to them. I'm sorry, but, but you know, if that's the kind of uh, sentiment that your learning in Scripture has driven you to, I think your learning has driven you far from the heart of God. The judges are supposed to point us to Jesus, and when our Lord Jesus was taunted, he didn't strike back. When our Lord was arrested, he submitted to the soldiers. And though he could have called down legions of angels, he didn't. Instead, he humbled himself. He sacrificed himself. Because Jesus' end goal was victory. And there is not victory without the unity of God's family. 
If we are finding victory in what we think is kingdom victory, and yet in doing so, we are alienating our brothers and sisters in Christ, then I would uh, argue that we are finding no victory at all. You know, God's purpose in Jesus Christ, you know, the, two, the true deliverer that all the judges point forward to, God's purpose in Jesus wasn't just the end of the outward oppression, but it's the end of the division within. It's the healing of the family of God and every relationship within that family. It's as, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, it, it's God's purpose is that all things in heaven and earth will be brought into unity in Jesus Christ. And, and it's the hearts of God's people being made new within them so that they're no longer divided in their minds towards God and so that they're no longer praising God with one hand and making sacrifices to idols with the other. They're no longer praising God with their mouth and in the next moment speaking death over their brother or sister who's been made in God's image. Jesus is the deliverer who has come to lead his people to true victory and we as Jesus' people are invited to walk in unity with God and with each other. Happily ever after might be the most unrealistic statement for endings in this world, but we do believe that there is a happily ever after ending that our hearts are longing for. And as the late author C.S. Lewis observed, if our hearts are longing for something that does not exist in this world, well, it must be out there somewhere in another world. And I think in some ways what our hearts are longing for is the kingdom of God. The time that the scriptures speak of when God will set all things right and all of creation will declare that all of his judgments are righteous and just and that he has, you know, overcome uh, sin and death, tossed them into the lake of fire and, and these maladies that have plagued humanity for most of our existence are no longer there because our deliverer has set us free from them. And in that world, Brother will never raise up arms against brother. Uh, It's it's spoken of as the lion will even lay down with the lamb. The the swords and the spears will be beaten into uh, plows and and plowshares. And and it's going to be a different world that is absence of these kinds of conflicts. And so uh, we are grateful for the story of Gideon, the example that he is. And yet at the same time, we can see that this indeed is not meant to be the end of the story or the fulfillment of God's promises. Those things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we look forward to the end together. So uh, this week, as you go out into the world, I pray that you would be a peacemaker. I pray that you would see your brothers and sisters in the kingdom all around you, and uh, that your heart would go out to them, and you would be uh, someone who lives as an ambassador of reconciliation, uh, inviting those around you to be reconciled to God and to be Uh, full-fledged members of his family, living at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you for all that he has given. Uh, We thank you for all that he has done, and we thank you that he is the one who is bringing all things into unity in heaven and on earth. We pray that we will be found in Christ this week and that we would be found uh, harmonizing with that unity in, uh, in the perfect place that you put us to do that. And uh, we just submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit and we invite your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.